Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is Jason. Uh, Jason, how are you doing? I'm still alive, uh, just a bit hot. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm uh, pretty much the same response there. <laughs> so today we'll take a break from our uh, usual uh, season coverage of Asian award winners uh, to cover a... We're coming back with a special episode of the podcast, as I mentioned, and that is for the coverage of the New York Asian Film Festival 2022 edition. And that is the 21st uh, New York Asian Film Festival, but it also happens to be the 20th anniversary. But before we get into the, the coverage of the festival, we will go into our usual segment where we talk about the media that we've consumed since last we spoke. Well, uh, due to the summer sun, I've been um, trying to stay indoors as much as possible, and uh, that means I've been watching a lot of uh, films and uh, TV. Uh, I finished season three of The Boys. Um, I liked it. Uh, I felt like the final episode was a bit rushed, and uh, I guess what I wanted was more Jensen Apples because he was fantastic as Soldier Boy. Uh, but, uh, like, spoiler alert, uh, if you don't want to find out any of the twists to the final episode of season three, um, turn off now. But, uh, I really enjoyed when he turned on Homelander and called him disappointment. That was such a great moment. And then, like, everybody broke off into individual little fights. I mean, that was a fairly predict, I don't know, I don't know if I mentioned it. I, I forget what I said, but I, I don't, for me, that was along the lines of what I had expected to happen. Yeah, it's kind of like Homeland is a very popular character. You can't just remove him from the show. Um, it's also a case that they were setting up um, Soldier Boy as this regressive um, person who would look down on what Homelander is as a sort of symbol of modern masculinity. Otherwise, uh, I watched uh, Thicker Than Blood, uh, Thicker Than Water, a Keske Yoshida film from 2018, which is billed as a comedy about two sets of unhappy siblings and their internecine conflicts. But I found it too bitter and miserable to laugh at. I find Keski Yoshida has a very um very negative view of humanity. <laughs> and uh, it really comes out in this film and come on Irene. Uh another film that I watched is Malignant, a two thousand nineteen horror film by James Wan. And um it's a throwback to like 90s, early 2000s horror movies in terms of style. Like the opening montage reminded me of the horror film, uh, well, the serial killer film Seven. And it has like a, a new metal soundtrack. And um, there's a ridiculous mental hospital uh, scene in it. It's also got an insanely fun story. And one of the best action sequences I've seen in modern cinema is like a supernatural force, which I won't spoil takes out an entire police station uh, with martial arts mayhem. And then, uh, what else did I watch? Just Only Love, a uh, 2019 film uh, by Rikia Imaizumi. That's uh, a typical sort of uh, Rika Rikia Imaizumi film in which they're like kid-like adults in Tokyo deciding whether to accept different types of love that they're enduring, whether it's waiting hopelessly for someone to come around or carelessly using others. And his films have as much depth as you want to give them because like, that's the entirety of the plot, seeing people fall in and out of love. Uh, it's based on a novel, but stylistically, it's all in my zoomies. There are long takes and snaking conversations, and it has a gentle tone to it. And I watched uh, While the Women Are Sleeping, 
2016 film that stars Hidetoshi Nishijima and Takeshi Kitano. It's a psychological thriller that's a bit light on psychology and thrills. I, I felt like it was less than the sum of its parts. Uh, because, like, you've got a great cast, and the story has an intriguing setup of an author looking into a relationship with a considerably older guy and a younger woman he meets at a holiday resort. It's kind of a Lolita-esque. Um, and it turns into an obsession for the writer. But, uh, like, the story isn't developed enough in terms of character motivations, and um, I felt like the director rushed through, through some scenes and sequences. Uh, but there's like great individual moments of atmosphere, such as like, um, the author, um, uh, pursuing the young woman uh, along windswept cliffs. Um, and I think like part of this problem is that it has its origins in the short story. So we couldn't expect like the, the people adapting it didn't really expand beyond that short story. And, uh, I also watched, um, and reviewed, uh, Our House Party. And I interviewed the director, Shuichi Kawanobi, and um, uh, Melting Sounds, and I interviewed the director, Kahori Higashi, and um, they're both available on my blog. And uh, otherwise, uh, like I downloaded some games for my uh, PS Vita, um, Odin Sphere, Dragon's Crown, uh, Muramasa Rebirth, which are like 2D side-scrolling beat-em-ups um, uh, in the Dungeons & Dragons style, I guess you could say. Uh, and it's like by vanilla way, um, really great, um, art style to them. I also downloaded, um, the Day of the Tentacle remaster. So, uh, that's my media consumption since the last time we spoke. I didn't realize that was released on consoles. Yeah, you've got, um, Day of the Tentacle and Grim Fandango. And, yeah. Um, I think there's, there's a, a Broken Age as well. So there were a couple of, um, uh, Tim Schafer games because a a lot of the classic point and click adventures don't play well on console. I mean, there's a lot of people who try them out. I mean, like the Monkey Island series have been released on consoles, but they play awful. They're pretty bad to play on consoles, and there's a lot of people who play them and think they're bad games because they don't play them in the manner in which they were meant to. Yeah, you need a mouse and like the good control system. Well, it's it's point and click. You know, it, if you can't point and click, it sort of defeats the purpose. I think uh, where the PS Vita tries to bypass that is it has a touchscreen interface. Oh, I, I, see, I see. Which allows you to move the characters around uh, the environments. But yeah, like the Dear to Tentacle uh, game, I've got that on floppy disk, but I haven't got it in any other way, so I thought I'd download it on PS Vita. Makes sense. And yeah, that's uh, my media consumption. How about you? All right. Uh, so mine, it's it's a uh, it's very a very light in terms of uh, a media that is not related to the New York Asian Film Festival because that's how I spend the last most of the my free time uh, in the last couple of weeks. I did manage to finish the boys, just as you, and I, I agree that I think the ending. In some ways, I, I knew exactly what would happen, certain things I predicted, but then certain other things went in directions that I, were completely unexpected to me. Um, it seemed to be, you know, we had that discussion about, do you think they're going to end on a cliffhanger or do you think they're going to close the story? And it sort of happened what I thought would happen, which would be a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, I thought the ending was uh, 
perhaps just as dark as the other seasons, but we'll see what happens now. I have, in addition to that, I have been listening or watching on YouTube the podcast by the actors of the show It's Always Sunny on Philadelphia. Okay, how is it? They have, I mean, it's it's fun. It's then discussing, giving trivia, uh, discussing, you know, things about each episode. So each episode of the podcast corresponds to an episode of the show, more or less, in addition to extra stuff. And it's mostly sort of, they try to make it funny as well. So there's a lot of extra stuff that is... Uh, funny in itself so that's it's been enjoyable i mostly listen to it while i'm doing other stuff so it's not it's not something that i pay a hundred percent of attention uh to what else and i think the last thing is i was a guest host uh, on a different podcast about the movie the incredible shrinking man which i've talked about before and i will give more details as that comes out it hasn't come out yet i don't know when it will come out but I will mention that when when it when the time comes, probably next episode or one of those sometime in the future. Uh, but I think that is it for my media consumption this week. Plenty to get on with with the New York Asian Film Festival. Yeah, films. yeah, I am I am proud of the vol. I was able to watch quite a bit uh, and a pretty significant variety of those. So we'll we'll of course we'll talk about that when the when that uh, when we get to our main discussion of the episode, but. Just before that, we have a little bit of news, uh, and that is the uh, 40th, the 40th uh, Hong Kong Film Awards, which, as I understand, just happened today in Hong Kong time, uh, as of the time that we're recording this episode, and we have a list of winners. So do you want to just name a few of the key uh, categories, Jason? So uh, in terms of most wins accrues, you're looking at Anita which is the uh, biography of Anita Mui, uh, the Cantor Pop Queen, which we've talked about in the Osaka Asian Film Festival episodes. Uh, you're, you're also looking at uh, a serial killer film called Nimbo, which uh, took like four major, three or four major awards, including Best Actress and Best Screenplay. Uh, best Film went to Raging Fire, and also Best Director, Benny Chan. Um, that's a post um, uh award win for him because he passed away. Was it last year or the year before? Yeah, this was apparently his final project, and I'm not sure about the details whether he completed it and then died, or like he died shortly before he could complete it, and someone else stepped in that we don't know. Was it uh, in post production when he passed? Something in? like that. It that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, well, Anita won Best New Performer for Louise Wong, who took the um, main role for Anita Marie. Also, uh, Best Actor Award went to Patrick Tse for Time. Um, I'm not sure if you've watched that one. No. So it's kind of like uh, three retired assassins come out of retirement uh, to help people uh, in need. And their clientele is almost exclusively elderly people looking to end their lives early because life in Hong Kong is very miserable for them. Uh, that sounds fascinating. It is. It's got a lot of social commentary to it. Like the three um, assassins are in bad, uh, are in dire straits themselves. Like they're isolated. Um, the the kids um, uh, resent their presence, uh, or they're finding it just hard to live. But they come together to help a young pregnant girl. And uh, yeah, it's a film that's toured at various film festivals, including Osaka Asian Film Festival, and. Um, 
best new director went to um, King Long Chan for handled cigarettes, which uh, I think we both had good things to say about that. Yes, yes, and I'm I'm happy that one. I was a bit surprised at Raging Fire, and I haven't seen it, but just reading reading about it, looking at the reviews, it did not seem that impressive. So I wonder if I thought Anita was going to win just because of the press and the sort of like the subject matter and how loved it is in in Hong Kong. Uh, but uh, but Raging Fire ended up winning Best Film and Best Director. I wonder if that had anything to do with Benny Chan dying. So maybe they felt, you know, they had to give it to him. I don't know if Benny Chan has ever won the award before. So maybe they felt they had to do it uh, uh, at least posthumously. Yeah, that, that could be uh, the case. I don't think he's ever won the Hong- this award, which is, uh, to remind our audience, it's sort of the equivalent Oscars for Hong Kong cinema. One thing, one thing that I'm kind of uh, a, a bit of trivia for this award. They used to have a category about best Asian film, uh, and they had some interesting winners in that category in the past. But I think in the last five years or so, they've changed it to best mainland or Taiwanese film. Well, they've got uh, this year. They had best Asian Chinese language film. Yeah, so it's ba- mainland or Taiwanese, basically. Yeah, I think it went to uh, a film called American Girl, and that's an Amer- uh, Taiwanese production, right? Yeah, I think all the do- nominees in that category were Taiwanese. Yeah. Uh, but that category used to be Best Asian Film, so they used to uh, to honor films from all over Asia. So South Korea, you know, even uh, an Iranian film, I think there was one time, so Thailand and all those. So there was... It was, I think, a more interesting category, and that for some reason they just downgraded it. At least it's a downgrade, in my opinion, to just Chinese language film, which is essentially just mainland China and Taiwan. I think those are the only ones that kind of fit that category. Um, could it? Could it also include Malaysia? I suppose. I don't recall. I don't recall ever that being nominated. So this this award was sort of replaced in. Uh, in 2012, so I was. It's it's more than five years, but it's only like ten years, so it's not. So before that, it used to be the best Asian film. Uh, it was replaced with the best film from mainland at Taiwan. Uh, that was the category, and then in 2020, they changed it to best Chinese language film. So I suppose before that, so in 2012, it could only be from mainland China or Taiwan, and then since 2020, I suppose theoretically it could be Malaysia. Oh, anywhere in the diaspora. Uh, yes. Uh, that's right. So any Chinese language, but I don't think since 2020, it's only been like a couple of awards because I don't think the awards happened in 2021. Yeah. So it's only been 2020 and 2022. I don't, I don't think any other films have been dominated. So it's only been two years, right? So maybe in the future that will happen, but I still think it is a downgrade comparatively to having a category that is the best Asian film. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's had some impressive, some impressive awards. Like, like in 2000, I think one year old boy won. Mm. Uh, my uh, my sassy girl. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Uh, no, I haven't seen it. It's a romantic comedy from South Korea. Yeah, it was at the start. It's a Korean wave. Yes, the Twilight Samurai won another year. Yoji Yamada. Yeah. So so and and of course in that category you could also still have from mainland China and Taiwan because it is included in the Asian category. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I'm I'm digressing, but it is it is sort of a a sore point for me uh, as someone who follows these types of awards pretty regularly. 
it's like narrowing down the competition. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so anything else about the news uh, about the Hong Kong Film Awards before we jump into our main discussion for the day? Uh, no, I think that's it. Uh, those are the big winners. All right, all right. So now we can jump into the, our main discussion. And for the second year in a row, the Heroic Purgatory podcast is covering the New York Asian Film Festival. And I'm very happy about that because this is a festival that always has a pretty good selection of Asian films, new Asian films, brand new Asian films that are receiving either their international or North American premiere uh, at this festival. So I'm very happy, and I'm sure you are too, Jason, of the opportunity to kind of have a, a look at these films and try to pick some of what we think are sort of the best uh, that we are able to see, uh, that we have time to watch, to be more correct, uh, from this festival. Yeah, uh, for my part, I stuck solely to the Japanese titles in the program. But I'm very happy to have the opportunity to ha uh, be able to watch the Japanese films and later on watch the films from other territories. Yes, and just to give a bit uh, a bit of background, so as we mentioned in the introduction, this has, is, was uh, the festival was inaugurated about 20 years ago, so either 2002 or 2001. 2002, because it was the 20th anniversary. And uh, and it is perhaps I think we've kind of mentioned this we've debated this before but it is the biggest Asian film festival if North America I don't think there is any other festival specifically about Asian film that kind of rivals this one. Uh, none that I can think of at least not one that puts on like sixty plus features. Yeah, uh, I think Japan Cuts is close, but that's I think. Even even excluding the fact that it's a solely a Japanese film festival, it's still smaller in scale. It's usually around thirty odd titles. Yeah, yeah. So in both in terms of numbers, number of films, and in terms of reputation, I think the New York, New York Asian Film Festival is the biggest film festival. It is sadly only in person this year, although a lot of these films will probably find distribution. Uh, but it's still good for people to be aware of this, so they can uh, have it in mind for those who are around the New York area. Who are, um, who are, or who are able to travel to sort of to and are interested in new Asian cinema, to have this in mind because it's a great opportunity to experience it in sort of a in a uh, often accompanied by extra features like actor and director interviews. Yeah, um, it's on from July fifteenth to the thirty first, and it's taking place at a film at Lincoln Center. Uh, from and uh, at the Walter Reed Theatre and at the Asia Society Cinema as well. And tickets for general public are fifteen dollars, um, twelve dollars for students and seniors and persons with disabilities, and ten dollars for film at Lincoln Center members. And as John has already mentioned, uh, you will be able to meet or. At the very least, be able to see some of the directors and actors uh, who have their films at the festival. A lot of the Japanese films have uh, members of the production team and the cast uh, traveling to New York to present the, their work. Yeah. Do you happen to know what the... Of course, I think it's too late now because the festival has already started. And because of, I think, certain restrictions that uh, we have to follow, this is probably going to be released a little later. Um, we cannot i think we cannot release before the films actually show or screen we have to release it after 
so so some or something like that. We have to we have to make, I have to make sure to check the regulations before I publish this uh, this episode. Uh, so it's too late if you're listening to this. But uh, just for a reference sake, do you happen to know what the pass the whole festival pass costs? I think last year was something on the scale of one hundred and fifty dollars. All access passes, so one hundred ninety nine dollars for the general public. Perhaps slightly more expensive than last year, and that would make sense considering yeah, that like, it is in person. And there are over sixty films. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so that I mean that's that's uh, good to know. Of course, it doesn't matter now, but. Uh, that's probably going to be relatively constant uh, or comparable for next year, so people can sort of have a have a good idea should they plan to do this again next year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so so yeah, it's 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 a great festival, and as is our tradition, we'll we'll try to talk about as many films as we can, but we will uh, to make the episode somewhat fit into the the length of uh, what an episode of our podcast usually is we will uh, concentrate on our top five that is our favorite five films uh, of the uh, festival out of those that we were able to see because as i've mentioned before we're both busy we don't have we don't necessarily have the time to see all films but i did my best to watch as many uh, and and as of a great variety as i could and I don't know about you, Jason, but I had a really hard time picking a top five for this for this year. I the the first one, my favorite one, that was an easy. I knew right away, halfway through that film, that okay, this is going to be number my number one. I didn't struggle with that one, but two to five, it was a really it was really hard to pick. And and sh- should I make this decision again tomorrow? There's a good chance I might my list might look different for for two to five. I had similar trouble because all the films that I watched were of a very good quality. And so it's going to come down to sort of like what I would personally, like as someone who goes to festivals and gets really excited, um, like by strange and odd things, that's going to sort of sway, uh, what I've picked for the top five. But like the other films that I watched are all really high quality. And um, I'd like to mention something about the other films that didn't make it into the top five as well. Of course, yeah, we will have a section. Uh, we'll have an honorable mention section after our top five to to make sure we say something about the films that didn't make it out of five, but we still think they were great films and 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 deserve uh, uh, deserve to be considered should they be released uh, later on uh, uh, through most likely through whole media uh, to the West, which is what these films usually get to, get to see. Yeah, I think I should also point out that uh, one of the rules we set for ourselves is we were not going to talk about um, films that we had seen at, at other festivals. And I, think, I think that probably the only other festival that had overlapped with this one was the Osaka Film Festival. Yeah. So, so anything that made those, so there were quite a few overlaps, and anything that made it into our top five for that one, we will probably not. Uh, we decided not to include it, just just to uh, increase the number of films that we talk about. We decided since we've already talked about those films, we decided to to make it a rule that we do not include those in this in our top five for this festival. Yeah. Okay. So, without further ado, what was your number five, Jason? Uh, so my number five was uh. Lesson in Murder by Kazuya Shiraishi. 
So uh, are you familiar with Kazuya Shiraishi? I am not familiar with uh, him, but this was my number two. Okay. <laughs> so I find that he could be his or miss, um, or his and miss. Uh, he's kind of he's become a big deal in Japan because particularly uh, his crime films, Blood of the Wolves and Last of the Wolves. Actually, I think crime films are his metier. And uh, with uh, like Blood of the Wolves and Last of the Wolves are probably his two best films. Um, he's also done like um, The Devil's Path and um, One Night. Um, I'm not too fond of those. Um, I find that uh, some of his films can be really dull and plodding. Um, and they're all like around two hours long, and you really feel it. Less uh, lesson of evil uh, has, uh, which is adapted from a 2017 novel, uh, is really. So you mean lesson in murder? Lesson, yeah, lesson in murder. Lesson of evil is the Takashi Miike film. Sorry, <laughs> um, lesson in murder. It's adapted from a 2017 novel, and it's a slow-paced film. And I think the closest comparison I would uh, make. Uh, is uh, with other films is Gukoroku, um, Traces of Sin, um, but specific, uh, more particularly Hirokazu Koryeda's Third Murder as well, um, both in terms of style. So I don't know if this is going to surprise you. I haven't seen the first, which one, what was the first one that you mentioned? Uh, Gukoroku, The Traces of Sin. I have not seen that one, but I don't know if this will surprise you, but the film that this reminded me most of was Memories of Murder. Uh, Memories of Murder has a police procedural aspect to it, and it's historical. In many ways, they're very different, but they have so many similarities. One is, there's a serial killer. Yeah. Uh, there is a in, in sort of an investigation that involves flashbacks. And, yeah. and flashbacks from a point of view of a character who's not familiar with the, with the, the crimes itself. And there's also the rural setting. Yeah. That well, so the and the, I, I, those are very evocative. Like the imagery was evocative enough that it couldn't help but not think of, uh, but think of the memories of murder. Yeah, I I didn't get that. It was um, like I think it wasn't as absorbing, and the fact that we knew um, like we've got a central antagonist there, and like the mystery surrounding him. As to like essentially the stories about whether he committed a final crime or as he claims he didn't commit a final crime. It's kind of like uh, we've got someone to focus on, whereas um, regardless of what happens, whereas with Memories of Murder, we don't know who the serial killer is. It's never established. Yeah, but but there's the parallel. I mean, like you said, the final crime. I don't think that we get an answer uh, about whether or not the uh, serial killer played by. Uh, Sadao Abe, who I thought did a fantastic job. Absolutely, it was it was I think the highest point, the the highest praise for the film is the his performance. I know that the other actors didn't do it, didn't do a great job, but I it just I one of the reasons why this is number two on my list is at how much I I appreciated his performance. But getting back to my original point is I think the mystery surrounding his final murder. And sort of like the ambiguity of the narration there, I think that is similar to the ambiguity in Memories of Murder. I like I focus more on how he's manipulating people. That is different. Yes, you're right. That that part is is very different. Yeah, and how he's manipulating um, the lead character. Um, everyone, Messiah. not just yeah. the lead character. Everyone. Yeah, and this, like as you said, it 
so there are these fantastic it plays into like uh like he's he seems like he has a naturally charming, positive personality, and he's got this wonderful smile. And the way that it's deployed in the film uh, is just fantastic because you see how he gets into the lives of his victims and shortens the distance before he um, initiates like a killing blow, essentially. And it's really chilling stuff, uh, the way he's able to manipulate people. And um, the reason, uh, one of the reasons why I mentioned the third murder is stylistically, like the whole interview room um, scenes where you have the reflections of the killer and um, the main character, Messiah, overlaying each other. Uh, that, that, that reminded me of that film. But there's like other stylistic techniques where like you'll have like projection of like, um, uh, I don't know, is it like 60 millimeter, 55 millimeter film on walls, uh, for like, um, flashbacks. And, um, like, I, I think it was all digital. Or do you know for a fact that he used 13, I uh, used film for those? For those uh, aspects, well, I'm just uh, referencing those film types because it's kind of like a flashback to childhood memories. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, and I mean, that, it looked. I mean, I, I I get what you say. It looked digital to me. It looked like it was just a filter applied on it. But maybe he did use films just for those clips. He did use film for just for those clips. It's kind of like they're taking the claustrophobic space of like the interview room and like expanding it so well. And like the bits where you have the partition screen, suddenly you realize it's no longer there and the characters are like touching each other. That's really great, um, bits like that. But, um, my reservations come with like the slow part plotting and, um, it takes its time sort of building up the story. And I think you can see some of the twists coming. Um, the, the film plays its hands, uh, a little too early in announcing like um, character arrivals or details. So the the one character that is supposed to be the killer, that is supposed to be the long hair uh, uh, actor whose name I don't know, who's supposed to be the killer. Yeah, that is telegraphed pretty early, but I, I don't necessarily that doesn't necessarily bother me because again of the ambiguity that we end up uh, finishing the story with. Yeah. However, the final twist, I did not see that coming. Maybe you did, but I, I didn't. That surprised me at all. I'm not I'm not sure I found that particular way to end the story satisfying. I think it, it felt like a little bit anticlimactic and, and especially how it ends abruptly right after that. I'm not going to spoil it for our audience in case they want to watch the film later, but there's a, a huge reveal at the end uh, involving, you know, people in the main character's life. Uh, for whom um, the serial killer has manipulated. And I kind of felt that uh, lacking closure a little bit. Like I wanted just a slight bit more there to sort of elucidate what's happening and why. What's the motivation behind that? Yeah, that's something that can come out of left field uh, for a lot of viewers. And it, it, it caught me off guard as well. Yeah. However, I, unlike you, I did not find the film slow. I thought the mystery was engaging especially the the visual sort of richness that uh the director sort of accompanies the investigation of the main character who is a uh student a law student uh especially you know with him uh sort of like you said the clips being projected as he's uh, representing his thinking process his 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 uh technique of solving the murder i thought i th i found that interesting enough that it did not notice the slow pace of the film it felt it felt it kept my attention. Basically, what I'm saying. Yeah, I like. I felt like when I wanted more of Sadao Abi when he was on screen, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. 
but I, yeah, I mean, I think maybe too much of him could have had the a negative effect. Um, one thing that I found interesting, and this is a common thing in Japanese sort of culture or in Japanese media, I don't know if it's in culture, is that this concept of third-rate universities, I mean, you've seen it all over the place in anime, in, in uh, TV series, in films, where unless you go to a top-rated university, you have basically no future. And yeah, this fails. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, there must be some reason why these people, why third-rate universities still exist, right? I mean, it can't be that bad. That always that, that's always fascinates me about sort of like this stereotype in Japanese media. I'm not sure if it's slightly exaggerated for the purposes of generating drama. Uh, for the purposes of context uh, in this film, with regards to like the main character's relationship with his uh, family, yeah, it's exaggerated. Okay, okay. Uh, but anyway, I mean, great film. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I wasn't necessarily satisfied with the ending, but the performance of, of Sadao Abe was strong enough that that factor alone made it a number two for me, or a second place for me. Okay. Okay. So number five, my number five was a the Taiwanese comedy drama Mama Boy or Mama's Boy. I'm not sure which one is correct. And it is a a comedy drama about a timid young man who still lives with a, a, his mother and falls falls in love with an older woman played by famous actress and singer Vivian Su, uh, who happens to be the manager of a love hotel that he visits at one point, or rather, he is coerced to visit by his cousin in order to sort of stereotypically make him grow out of his shyness. Uh, and there are a lot of things to love about this film. It has a beautiful cinematography, very colorful, very very stylized. The performance by both the young man, whose uh, name escapes me at the moment, uh, he's also, I think, a singer or like a pop idol or something. Uh, his name is Kai Ko. He's a Taiwanese pop idol. Uh, or Taiwanese singer or something like that, and the uh, the older woman whose place his romantic interest is Vivian Su, who's also I'm sure you've you've heard of her, or if you haven't heard of her, you if you see her, you probably recognize her. And uh, the performances of the sort of like the starring duo are fantastic. The mother, the one who plays the mother, sort of the uh, is a bit stereotypical, is a bit of a stereotypical stereotypical overbearing mother type of character, and I think even the main character is a shy virgin basically he's also a bit stereotypical but i think the relationship between him and the his older romantic interest uh is strong enough that i think kind of makes the film very very uh, very enjoyable experience one thing that i did not enjoy is again maybe the ending wasn't as satisfying and i i don't know i feel like the film took the coward's way out and the relationship between the younger man and the older woman does not, in my opinion, go far enough. I think they, they did something very interesting by sort of getting them involved, but then it kind of feel like they kind of don't dare to go one step further and they just kind of have it without, I'm trying to find the words not to spoil it, but they sort of have it dissolve, in my opinion, prematurely. And they then Right at the end, they sort of try to tack in a, a an alternative happy ending, which, in my opinion, doesn't work. And that's why this is only number five. This could have easily been a number one or number two, had they been had the movie been a little braver and a little bit more daring in the depiction of 
the relationship between the young protagonist and Vivian Sue. Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, it was pretty interesting in terms of the depiction of the sex workers because it is a love hotel, and it's a the, the essentially the the Vivian Sue is a sort of the manager for prostitutes, and it's uh, that I mean that part is very interesting, although also a little bit PG thirteen maybe. That's basically, I think, that my problem with the movie. It's it's slightly between PG thirteen and R, and it can make it. It seems to can make its mind up about where it wants to be, whether it wants to be PG thirteen or whether it wants to be R R rated. And it seems to be that the conflict there didn't between those two sides of the film didn't work so well with me. Uh, in terms of Asian cinema, uh, do we have any titles akin to Harold's and Moore's that we can think of? I can't think of any. I mean, I know for a fact that there are, uh, even though I can't think of any off the top of my head, I can think of, uh, there have been other films that deal with the relationship of younger men and older women. And of course, we have a lot of younger women and older men. Uh, but I I don't know about anything that is quite like Harold and Maude. Yeah, I, I'm struggling to think of anything like that. But it sounds like this Taiwanese film comes close to it. Yes. Well, it's it's not quite like that. I mean, it's a it's not as bizarre as Harold and Moss, but I suppose I suppose in a broad sense, perhaps they could belong in the same category. Okay. Yeah. Age wise. E- yes. Um, okay. So, what is your number four, Jason? So my number four is uh, Broken Commandments. Um, which is based on a novel by Tosun Shimazaki. And it's all about um, a guy, uh, a man in uh, Japan, uh, just after the Edo period. So when Japan was like uh, expanding as a military power um, and they were at war with Russia and nationalism is on the rise. And uh, this man, Ushimatsu Sagawa, he's a popular teacher and uh, he has a budding romance with a woman from a samurai family. But uh, one thing that jeopardizes it is that he comes from the Burakumin, uh caste of people. So these are like uh, lower caste in Japanese society. And at a time when nationalism is high and there's discrimination against people of his background, he tries to hide it. And um, he finds that hiding it is actually really difficult because uh, he wants to be able to speak about his identity to the people closest to him. And... Um, it's only when he comes into contact with a uh, writer and poet, Rentaro Inoko, um, that he's able to open up and uh, tragedy suddenly strikes. I find that it's a really handsomely mounted film. And this novel's been adapted uh, twice in the past, once by Keske Kinoshita in 1948 and um, Konichikawa in 1962. And it was made now um, to celebrate uh, the centenary of, um, I'm quoting, uh, I think, yeah. Um, Zenkoku Suisha's Founding Congress Declaration, Japan's first ever human rights declaration, that argued that Burakumin, Zainichi Koreans, Ainu, and other disadvantaged minorities deserve the same respect and freedoms accorded to others in Japan. And again, I find like the main character's sort of um, inner turmoil as he's having to hide his identity from being uh, from a low caste uh, background. Really moving. Um, lead actor uh, Shotaro uh, Mamiya is really good in that role. Um, he's able to like portray uh, a teacher who's just-minded and um, 
well liked by everybody around him and um, an upstanding member of the community. And when you see how um, difficult it is for him to live his life while hiding his background, it, it is quite moving. Yeah. So I, I didn't I didn't have a chance to see this one, but I see that the previous attempts that you mentioned, one was directed by Kisuke Kinoshita and the other one was by Kon Ichikawa. And I'm trying to, to remember if I've seen the Kon Ichikawa version. I don't think so, but I'm looking at some of the images and it do look familiar, although he's directed so many that it is possible I'm confusing it with something else. Have you happened to have watched any of the, those previous iterations? No, I haven't watched either of those uh, iterations, and I'd be quite interested in going back to see how they tackle the subject matter. Would they be uh, a lot more frank and bitter than this one? Because, like in the post-war period, Kesuke Kinoshita did hold back on showing, um, like, the nastiness of society. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'm pretty sure I haven't seen the Kinoshita version, but I was wondering if I've seen the Ichikawa, because for Kinoshita, I've only seen one film of his, but I don't think so. Probably not. Uh, my guess is, yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting uh, to see to to see and compare compare those kind of iterations and maybe visit the the sort of philography of two great directors of of Japan cinema. It doesn't. I'm looking. I'm looking at just a cursory view of the it, for either of those directors. So the uh, Ichikawa one is known as the Outcast, and the Kinoshita one is known as Apostasy. It doesn't look like it's well known. One of the better films for either director. No. Although I think the Criterion is probably released both of them, or at least one of them. So maybe they're worth visiting. That's something to keep in mind. At least if you're one of familiar yourself with a story, if you don't have a chance to watch this later iteration. Yeah, the, the life of the writer itself uh, could be adapted into a movie as well. It's pretty dramatic, like a father with um, mental health issues and an older sister mental health issues. And uh, life as a writer was tough for Tosong Shinzaki, um, like living um, with very little money and um, losing his kids. And then um, getting into a very, very um, bad relationship with his niece. Would you say that this, the later version, Broken Commandments, is more of a uh, a an optimistic iteration of the same story. I would say, yeah, it's much more um, family friendly. I would say it's the type of film that you could take your parents and your kids to see. It's a, like it lays out sort of how unfair and illogical prejudice can be. It's really, uh, really well shot. Um, like I don't think it does anything strikingly original. It's just really well told, and the ending is satisfying. Uh, I shed a few tears. Okay, well, that's that's always something. Uh, okay, anything else about it? Yeah, just getting a bit of background into political age um, uh, that it represents. There's a lot of talk about like um, socialism and Japan's imperial um, uh, expansion as well. It's quite interesting. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. It looks like it could be of benefit to people. Maybe it could be one of those things that if you're interested in in if you're interested in getting into Japanese historical films. A lot of them are told without context, whereas this one sounds like there is some context that could inform the the unfamiliar viewer. Yes, there is. Okay, sounds good. Okay, and what is your number four? All right, so my number four is, as far as I'm aware, the only American film in the festival dealing with dad. 
uh, which stars Ali Mackey, is a comedy drama starring Ali Mackey as a sort of a more or less stereotypical working power woman, uh, uh, woman in a power suit, just to put it bluntly, who has to come back home uh, along with her brother to her estranged family in order to deal with uh, the father's sudden depression. And it is mostly a comedy, but it is a very effective, very well told. It is one of the better depictions of depression that I've seen in life, I mean, in, in cinema, in a way that it doesn't sort of linger in it. I mean, the film is really not about the dad. The film is about the reactions, or rather how, to, to quote the movie title, uh, how they deal with that, so it's really about the other family members. It's about Ali Mackey, who plays the sort of like the daughter, a relative, the most successful daughter, uh, one of her brother who is dealing with divorce of a woman that he's apparently obsessed with, and the other younger brother who still lives with the parents, and he's the one that sort of like first detects the father's depression. And it's mostly a comedy, like I said. There's a few dramatic part, but as they kind of try to deal with this, they all examine their past relationship with their dad and sort of like. Fairly early on, it's revealed that he was not the best one. So the dad is depicted as this, again, stereotypically very harsh, very strict Asian father. And they try to to sort of like deal with that. They try to find the motivation to help him despite their relatively uh, disturbed past with with his father. And one thing that made me extremely happy about how this movie sort of concludes is I mean this is not the first movie of its kind but it usually how these moves these movies stereotypically end is the younger generation understands the struggle of the older generation and where the harshness comes from and why why the the older generation had to behave the way they do and I always feel that's a cop out whereas in this movie uh, it ends with the acknowledgement that no, the dad was an asshole, basically. That's what they say, and it's there's no nothing excuses that behavior, despite uh, despite no matter it doesn't matter how many times you say that you had it bad and your your parents were even worse that you were. That doesn't excuse you. That doesn't excuse the father's behavior and lack of affection and you know a lot of stereotypical stuff. Otherwise to their children, and I'm very happy that the film doesn't take the easy way out, but it actually confronts uh, the the father. Uh, and it's the ending is slightly bittersweet, as that things don't necessarily change, but the the children do end up coming to terms with their sort of disturbing past, or not disturbing, but relatively unhappy past, and they're able to move on while also acknowledging that, yes, it was not a... It was not a happy time in their lives, and I, I thought it was an excellent way to approach this subject matter. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's not a perfect film by any means. I thought the the comedy doesn't always land. I mean, there are some funny moments. There are some moments. I mentioned the word stereotype too often, and that's the film is filled with stereotypes, both with Asian stereotypes. Of course, the 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 crew and the cast are all Asian, so I suppose they have license to do it, but it. It's not it, the stereotypes themselves don't bother me. What bothers me is that I've seen a lot of that stuff before, and the film doesn't necessarily have anything too original to offer on, on some aspects. The dialogue occasionally is a, felt a bit too awkward, a bit too uh, jokey or, or forced, uh, forced jokes in a sense. 
uh, you know, there was the, the in terms of technical uh, pre- presentation, it was a fairly typical comedy. Could have been sort of TV quality, basically. What I'm saying, there was nothing about the cinematography that particularly stands out, but the performances I thought were uh, very good, uh, and I think that the the sort of the, the underlying message I think worked very very well. Mm. Even the depression is not. It's not depicted in such a way. It's depicted realistically, respectfully, in my opinion, but it's still to a to an extent that it could still be acceptable in a in a comedy film, which this is ultimately this ultimately is. Hmm. Yeah, just to circle back um, to lesson in evil, like one of the interesting things is like uh, how trauma is passed down from one generation to another. Yeah, and there's a bit of that in this film as well. Yeah, that's why I uh, mentioned it. Yes, absolutely. So I recommend, of course, uh, Jason, I know you're focused on Japanese films, but if you have a chance, I'd recommend watching this one because I thought it was was interesting. And I have to say, a lot of the American films in these festivals tend to be more missed than hits. And I was happy that we finally got one that was sort of a uh, a hit because I always try to watch whether it is Japan Cuts or the previous iterations of New York Asian Film Festival or the Osaka Film Festival. I don't remember if there was any American titles in that one, but they tend to be, I don't know why, they tend to be kind of bottom of the barrel stuff. You watched Snakehead for the last New York Asian film. Exactly, yeah. That was, I was not very happy with that one. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, but this one was very good. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. And I strongly recommend it. Again, there are flaws with the film. It's not, there are things, a lot of things not to like, but I I thought it had enough to like that it sort of made it on my top five. Okay. So what is your number three now? My number three is Ribbon, um, written, uh, directed, and edited by a uh, single-named uh, actress, Non. And, um, well, that, that's her stage name. She does, she, I looked it up. She did have an actual, more conventional name, right? Rena Noonan. Yeah, something like that, which kind of uh, sounds like her stage name. And uh, it's... Like, she was a big deal when she first started. Um, she was like a kind of like a sweetheart character, became very popular until she got into a contract dispute with her talent agency. And then she kind of got blacklisted from Japanese entertainment for a few years. And she slowly like made her comeback. She's appeared in uh, a number of good films, including um, Hold Me Back, um, which was at last year's New York Asian Film Festival. And I think she won uh, an award for it, a uh, fair performance in that film at the Tokyo International Film Festival. Oh, man, it's worth mentioning that she's still fairly young. I don't think she's even 30 yet, right? Although for Japanese, by Japanese standards, that, you know, they actresses and models tend to start pretty young. Yeah, I'm not sure about her age, but she's quite industrious. I think I looked it up. I think she was 28 or 29, something like that. Yeah, she's quite industrious. Like, um, she's opened up her own YouTube channel. She does her own art and stuff. And, uh, now she's, uh, uh, she's back into acting. Um, she's also like the lead, um, voice actress for In This Corner of the World as well. And, um, yeah, it's satisfying to see her, like, make, uh, her, this is her, Big screen debut, feature film debut, and uh, it's a coming coming of age dramedy, which was inspired by an interview she did with an art college student. The student um, was uh, essentially frustrated because, like, uh, she had been told that she can no longer exhibit the artwork that she'd spent a year making um, due to the lockdown. And this is a COVID nineteen um, uh, drama, essentially. 
Um, I can't think of uh, many films that actually directly confront COVID-19 um, that are being screened. Can you? Right now? I mean, I'm sure there are. I mean, there were a couple ones in the previous New York Asian Film Festival. In the previous film festival, at the start of the pandemic, there were a few. Um, but Well, that was not the start. I mean, that was 2021, right? So that was a year after, or a year and some change after the pandemic. And at the start. Um, that, like, filmmakers were directly addressing uh, COVID-19. It seems like everybody's sort of taking narratives back to normal, whereas uh, Non, with a film ribbon, is, uh, like, taking us back into the middle of, like, the uh, pandemic. Uh, well, we're still in the middle of it now, actually, <laughs> despite what the news media might tell you. Um, but essentially, it's, she plays Itzka, an art university student, uh, who, when we first meet, their classes are being cancelled, and all the students at her university are being told to take home their work or be trashed, and like everybody's left devastated because their efforts are going to be wasted, um, and their futures are uncertain as job offers dry up. And um, Itzka returns home and um, she gets into episodic adventures essentially um, uh, different members of her family show up at her home um, when they are showing up she's oversleeping and then going down to the local park and um, seeing odd people around and uh, this is like a COVID-19 film so the parents uh and the sister are exhibiting sort of like uh, reactions to COVID-19. Like the mother wears uh, a homemade hazmat suit, which is over the top. The father has a social distancing device, which is a, a large pole. And the sister um, uh, uses uh, uh, antibacterial um, sprays and wipes on everything. And the streets are empty of people. And um, it's those days are spent essentially in isolation, slowly going mad as uh, she sees her future sort of being taken away from her by COVID-19. Um, and then her anger really comes out when her, her friend um, finds that like her university career could be over because um, she's essentially like tried to carry on painting when she's been told she can't. And uh, I found like the film really captures that sense of uncertainty that we live in. Um, this, uh, also, uh, like the anger that can come from the fact that like life's changed, um, but we're not able to really address it properly. Um, but it also finds comedy to temper all of those negative emotions. So you see the parents and the sisters' reactions are so over the top, it's funny. And Non has a very um, quirky, um, cute character um, that uh, keeps everything nice and light as well. When she goes into like the more dramatic moments, um, uh, when she has to like explode of anger, uh, not so uh, like I would have wanted uh, more depth from that. But uh, for the most part, like the film is uh, good, uh, like visually uh, engaging, and a very uh, quick tempo to it as well, and uh, just a nice, pleasant atmosphere and an optimistic ending too. Yeah, so I, I agree. Uh, I watched this, and I was I was impressed by this being a directorial debut in terms of visual style. Uh, I thought it was it was very impressive. Some of the flourishes that she adds to, including sort of those those dream sequences, or I'm not sure what to call them exactly, of the ribbons kind of surrounding her most of the time. Yeah, it's like her artwork is like she uses ribbons and other things she sticks onto paintings, and people um, call it childish. 
Well, regarding that, I am someone who does not, and I, I, I mean, I take the responsibility personally. Don't make take this as an objective statement. But I am someone who doesn't get modern art. I understand paintings. I understand sculptures to a certain extent, and everything else just looks like nonsense to me. <laughs> and and sort of a lot of it. But even even for me, I think the her final piece does look beautiful once she finishes it. And I don't know if this is a spoiler or not because I'm not sure if it has anything to do with a that can't be spoiled. But um. But the final piece that she completes with her painting and her ribbon says does actually look quite beautiful. Though had this movie been released last year, it would have made it into my top five. But I think right now I, f- I couldn't help but feel that it was a year too late because it, it, it felt too uplifting for the subject matter that he tried to deal with. As someone, and again, a lot of this is, is subjective, of course, but as someone who has ex- witnessed the actual depression and uncertainty that COVID COVID causes in people, it's this it did not feel to me like a realistic depiction of that. Like just to, to be a little blunt, someone not being able to, to a student not being able to display their art, their class project in public is nothing compared to what some people actually lost during the pandemic. And last year, when we needed these kind of uplifting and optimistic stories, I, I this would have been, uh, at least by me, would have been perceived difference. But I think right now, like you said, we're not outside the pandemic, but we do have some distance from what is the worst of the pandemic. And I think that distance puts us put us as a safe place to sort of examine the worst of the pandemic rather than stories that are like this. Again, I'm not. That's not necessarily. Uh, saying anything negative about the story itself is just I wanted something more out of the story and sort of my expectations were not met for that. And sort of for that reason, I could not identify with the protagonist and her struggles. Yeah, this isn't social realism. This is like uh, the main character lives fairly comfortably. It's more about um, her creative struggle and like anxiety over the future. And I, t- I take I absolutely take your point that um like yeah like people lost relations people lost so much due to the pandemic um that's doesn't necessarily disqualify this film though. no but it's just it's more about what I expect at this point in time so had this movie like I said come out last year I think it would have been welcome had this come out two or three years from now where again we are can actually. We've dealt with the worst of the pandemic, and we can actually now examine more internal, uh, more abstract, uh, philosophical sort of uh, or artistical effects. That's also fine. But I just at this point in time, where we're still kind of trying to understand the worst of the pandemic, it's just this movie did not did not satisfy that itch uh, for me. Like I said, that and as you mentioned as well. I mean. Comparatively speaking, uh, non or the character that she plays had it pretty well. I mean, she had a family right there. She even had a boyfriend eventually, uh, uh, even though her, her interaction was very awkward with him. Yeah, the film leaves it open. It doesn't end with a cheap romance, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I don't know. It, it's. It's. It seemed to me that clearly that they liked each other. But anyway, it just again, it's. It's more of I. I wanted this film to be something else. From what it was, and for that reason, I could not, I could not enjoy it for what it was meant to be. And maybe if I revisit this two years from now, I'll be in a different headspace where I can appreciate it more than I did right now at this point in in my sort of 
development in my in my personal experiences. Yeah, I think I appreciate it in the sense. Uh, I, I part of why I appreciate it is because there's just such a lack of appetite from a lot of filmmakers to address COVID nineteen directly. Uh, yes, I I don't know. I I feel like there are considerably a considerable amount of directors dealing with it, but like off the top of my head, maybe not Asian specifically, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I I don't think it's necessarily a topic that directors a lot of directors are avoiding it on purpose. I think maybe we're still too close to it. Yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of. Let's all work together, guys. Films. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, a lot of. Um, or cheap uh, horror movies. Yeah, or or like the like on the on the spirit of the Imagine video, uh, like equivalent films. But and I feel like there's still a lot of it. It's still like that. So you're right in the sense that this is not that. It's a, a, a more. A, it's an actual film. It's an actual film with a story and and a and a point. Yeah. Um. Okay. So anything else about it that you'd like to add? Uh, again, it's another film that I think you could take anybody to and um, you could come out uh, of it having enjoyed it. Yeah, it's like I said, it's very uplifting, very optimistic, for the most part. Not 100%, but for the most part. Absolutely. And what's your number three? Yeah, so my number three is a South Korean movie called Perhaps Love. And it is an interesting. It was an interesting take on a romantic comedy. Uh, it was about a famous novelist struggling with writer's block that decides, uh, because of pressure from his publishing company, he decides to partner with a young gay novelist uh, who also happens to have a crush on the older writer uh, to to collaborate for his next uh, novel. And uh, in order to do this, he has to to overcome his prejudices about sort of gay people. He doesn't doesn't have any, that many to begin with, but there's still a, a discomfort that he feels, especially or mostly caused by sort of like the confession of love from the young writer to him. Uh, and he also has to to overcome an extremely dysfunctional family life, which is what's the root of the most comedy uh, that is comes from this film. And the film is ultimately a comedy. There's some heavy-hitting drama in some parts, but it is ultimately a comedy. And um, what I appreciated most about this film... Uh, or, or at least one of the films that I appreciate is that the main character, the, the or the novelist, he is not at all what you often see the stereotypical novel novelist character. You know what's um what's the name of that documentary from Kazuo Hara that we saw uh, about the novelist? A dedicated life. A dedicated life. So that to me, that's the stereotypical novelist, uh, surrounded by dinners and honored, and sort of usually has an academic position. Um, Tells big stories. Yes. This character was more of a Song Kang-ho type comedic uh, working class type of character with occasionally insights. He occasionally sort of like says something clever, but for the most, for the most part, he's kind of a doofus uh, that gets into trouble. And so the film is very funny, or at least it's, it's quite funny. And he has, a, he has a dysfunctional relationship with his ex-wife. He has a dysfunctional relationship with his current wife. He also has a dysfunctional relationship with his publisher and uh, and son, and uh, all like a, a lot of misunderstanding that is sort of makes this kind of a comedy of errors uh, or a comedy of dunces. I'm not sure if that is a term. Uh, dunces. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. 
but it that I think the sort of the heart of the story is his sort of coming to terms with not his sexuality. I don't think it's ever implied that he is secretly gay or that, but coming to terms with sort of like the being able to to sort of accept someone who is ultimately different from him and be able to sort of get out of his slump and understand the root cause of why it is that he can't write and why it is that he's lost his ability to to create the kind of the the to create the art that he loves uh so much and it is the the sort of the treatment of i felt also for uh for south korea which is relatively rare the treatment of the gay character i thought it was very respectful it is again there's no gay kissing or anything like that happening but in terms of how the gay character is depicted is not stereotypical at all he the you i don't i'm not even sure if the actor is gay i mean he's very he is a young, struggling uh, college student that is trying to make it as a novelist. I mean, that's really what it, how he's depicted that happens to be gay. And I, I thought that was a very, uh, uh, like a very, very well done. Uh, and overall, I mean, it's it's just a, a, like some, some like the first example that you mentioned, it's a very, not mostly family-friendly film, I think. And it's very funny, very enjoyable. And and you kind of sit down and, and have a good time with it. But it also... I think that some of the social commentary that he deals with is also very poignant. And it doesn't, it's not the kind that hits you over the head with. It's subtle for the most part. Uh, there's also a subplot with his son falling in love with an older woman again. Uh, that's, uh, that also leads, uh, leads to, a quite, uh, to quite a bit of um, comedy as well. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I think I was happy to see a comedy that is, did not feel stereotypical for the most part. There was, legitimately funny uh but also had you know a an interesting point to make so a confederacy of dunces that's a novel okay that's what i was thinking about yes i think <laughs> comedy of errors uh yes yes anyway 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 that's it's i think it's an enjoyable film it's not perhaps on a different day with a different mood this might not make my top five but it i think in lieu of everything else sort of that i was uh, watching and and sort of experiencing while while also watching this one, I it stood out enough that I I I had to include it. So uh, my number two is Shin Ultraman, and uh, this is uh, Shinji Higuchi and Hideaki Anno's uh, reimagining of Japan's biggest tokusatsu versus kaiju series, and uh, they are the team that uh, did Shin Godzilla, and. It essentially uh, does the same thing, where you've got rapid fire editing um, scenes shot at um, oblique angles, and uh, like a massive cast of characters, most of whom are part of the bureaucracy. And uh, what we're watching is essentially like Japanese government, various departments in it react to kaiju attacking the country, and uh, they're led by. Uh, uh, the Japanese government respond with a special task force, Kaiju Special Countermeasures Office Task Force, uh, led by Kimio Tamamura, um, played by Hidetoshi Nishijima. And, uh, it was also in man- Drive My Car, right? Yep, Drive My Car. And, uh, Hiroko Asami, uh, who's, uh, played by Masami Nagasawa, and, uh, Shinji Kaminaga, Takumi Saito. And, uh, essentially, uh, it's like, with Shin Godzilla, you've got giant monster appearing and the military showing up and conventional weapons failing. And then, uh, like, 
out of the blue, a giant man uh, comes and shoots laser beams and punches the uh, <laughs> monsters. I found it a lot of fun. And I think on a cinema screen, it'd be absolutely fantastic because you've got quick rhythm of like um, the scenes going by. Uh, and it's like camera angles, just like Shin Godzilla, they're all really like odd ones that you could pick. And uh, if you've seen Shin Godzilla or um, Neon Genesis Evangelion, you'll get uh, an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, you'll have an idea of what I'm talking about. There's lots of walking and talking and uh, lots of info dumps as well and lots of internecine rivalries between different government departments. Um, it doesn't have the same sort of build-up tension that Shin Godzilla has, which is like a ticking time bomb of what's uh, like uh, like the giant creature reviving itself and destroying everything. Um, essentially, what you've got is like a series of different antagonists showing up and um, Ultraman having to sort of um, negotiate uh, or battle them. And so you get a lot of context building. This feels like it could be the first film in a massive franchise, essentially. It, it, it is meant to be. It is meant to be. Yeah, it's basically like adapting the series for the big screen. I think they've done a lot, uh, a very good job. Because it's a lot of fun to watch. And there's like a hard cut at the very end. <laughs> it's just like we talked about uh, fast, uh, uh, the final episode of Boys Season 3 ending too fast. Or yeah, like Shin Ultraman, it's got that beat. And it made me laugh. It was so fast. But yeah, it presents such a spectacle. And towards the end, like you've got lots of surreal imagery as it does lots of like dimension hopping. There's a lot of fun visually to engage with. And you've got all like the um, audio callbacks to the old film as well, like old-fashioned music and sound effects. So it's a lot of fun. So I have you. Are you familiar at all with the Ultraman franchise? Any of the iterate, any of the previous iterations that it's had? Well, this is it. Like uh, I'm not a fan, but it still won me over. Okay, so I think I think we probably might have the biggest disagreement that we've ever had in this podcast because this film did not do it for me at all so i mentioned i mentioned the beginning that i was having a hard time picking my top five because there were so many good films where in fact out of all the films that i watched there was only one that i was a very easy no for me and it was shin ultraman and i i did not like this film at all it was uh, I should also pre- preface that by saying that I am a huge fan of Shin Godzilla, and it is, in my opinion, one of the best movies, or at least one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. And I saw this, and it was, first of all, a mystery to me why they even tied it to me. It seemed like a, a, it was not, no actual reason other than sort of trying to follow the American model of cinematic universes. But even without that, it just felt like a major disappointment compared to... Shin Godzilla. I think I think they should it should have never been a movie in the first place. I think there should have been a TV series because the film is like different di- mostly disjointed episodes of a TV series. Like there's the first part with the kaijus and there's the until uh, Ultraman shows up then there's the second part with uh uh Arab Rabia whatever he's Zarab. Uh there's the second part with the other guy and there's the final part with the atomic bomb reference it's like again completely disjointed you don't need any of the previous parts to have the other parts like this this did not need to be a film i think yeah i agree it pales in comparison to shin godzilla but i still find it a lot of fun i i i there are parts that i enjoyed the action scenes namely but anything else any anything of the bureaucratic 
the bureaucratic scenes failed for me because it did not have that underlying tension that sort of they like in Shin Godzilla you enjoy them you tolerate them because number one they, there is actually a point to be made and it is a point a point about sort of like the inefficacy of the government to sort of respond to these type of crisis situations so it was a very a very real world analog but you've just seen Godzilla so seeing them kind of in a very dry manner analyze all the ways that it, which, which they can defeat Godzilla actually actually adds to the tension rather than taken away with it whereas this one was you're just waiting for them to end so Ultraman shows up again there's nothing there's almost no point to the bureaucratic things with with a few exceptions and the other thing is even the actual fights that I did find enjoyable I, I'm I'm not gonna lie it's still pale in this in in terms of special effects, pale in comparison to Shin Godzilla. And that's, you know, do you remember the scene in Shin Godzilla where you see the atomic breath for the first time? I've forgotten it. I mean, that's, in my opinion, that's one of the most beautiful uh, executions of a special effects, again, in the 2010s. It's so effective. And and that's, I think that's kind of the 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 key to, to these kind of movies is because in terms of pure technical skill, sort of Japanese cinema or a cinema of any other kind will have a hard time compete with what we're used to from Hollywood because they, they have the budgets, they have the experience, they have the history to, to, to do in just purely on a technical level I'm talking about, to, to sort of surpass any the, the, the cinema of any other country. What films with limited budget actually have to do to compete is they have to surpass it in creativity. And that's what I felt Shin Godzilla did, even though he did not have the budget of a Hollywood film, he had the creativity that made made it still stand out more than most special effects you see in Hollywood. And Ultraman just didn't have that for me. I, I will confess the final shot was impressive. The final, not shot, but the final sequence of the fight with uh, Ultraman and um, what's the name of the big guy in the sky? A weapon system. Yeah. Zonan. Xenot, uh, uh, something. Not, not Zarab. <laughs> But um, no, I always agree that like Shin Godzilla has this through line of like the like main government bureaucrat following slowly climbing up the ranks as like uh, prime minister, <laughs> other members of the government get wiped out slowly. But I, I I like the characters in Ultraman a lot. I find that like they had good comedic repartee with each other, and uh, Hideyoshi Nishijima is really steady hand in that regards. But the stuff with Masami Nagasawa and like um, how characters reacted to her when she turned into a giant woman was uh, spoiling it. Um, it was really funny. And uh, I actually found the fight scenes really well executed. Like lots of composite shots, great use of camera angles to cover up like the joints between CG and uh, practical effects. And uh, yeah, great music to accompany them. So I think like the, the fight scenes are really good. I think so. Had this not been tied to the Shin Godzilla franchise, I think I would enjoy it a little bit more because they wouldn't have those sort of like expectations with it. The other thing is, had I been maybe more familiar with the Ultraman franchise, maybe I would get the references because I understand there are a lot, and I would be more uh, perhaps appreciative of you know the, the so maybe some of the limitations that they had to stick to. And what you say as as fight scenes, yeah, I mean they were fine. I mean, I they were fine as fight scenes, but as like you have to view them both as fight scenes in terms of the choreography, but also as special effects. And I think as special effects, they fell short in my opinion. As fight scenes, I mean they were fine. I didn't have much of a problem with it. I I didn't think I was seeing anything too unique in that respect. But it was it was fine. 
Oh, I felt like they were really well integrating like different like parts, like puppetry and stop motion and like uh, uh, live action stuff. So I, yeah, yeah, and that, that I mean, that's almost worse in my opinion because you could because of how in my opinion cheap were the the CGI. It was very easy to tell what was CGI and what was a real actor in a suit, etc., etc. Whereas in Shigodzilla, they did a much much better job. At uh, at kind of blending those elements together. I think we should point out, like Shin Godzilla, like Godzilla spends most of his time inactive in the second half, as they're all waiting for him to reemerge. Well, and that's why it works. Whereas this one is Ultraman is a lot more on screen, and there's a lot. It's this movie is a lot more special effects heavy. It was a lot more green screen, basically. I felt I I enjoyed it a lot more than you did too. Yeah, like I said, this is a. I, I made it clear that this was going to be a disagreement, but it is. It, I just. It, <laughs> It just didn't do it for me, and it's it's fine. I'm not I'm not trying to make any bigger point here, but it's just I don't know. I just it did not deliver what I hoped that it would because I was I was excited to see this film. When you go to the cinema, you want spectacle. I think Shin Ultraman delivers that spectacle, and I like just like that's an evil visually good looking uh, ribbon, visually good looking Shin Ultraman again, visually good looking and like great action scenes that you can get swept up in. But my, my my counter argument to that is that I think right now, for example, if I wanted to go to the cinema, I don't think I would have a shortage of spectacle, whereas I would have a shortage of good movies at the cinema. I think you, you've got spectacle, but not much else when it comes to like Marvel movies like uh, Spider-Man, all that's assuming it, whereas um, Shin Ultraman has that weird sense of humor that's carried over from Shin Godzilla. Yeah, but then again, with sense of humor is very subjective. And I'm, I'm not saying that I didn't find parts of the film funny. I did. Uh, but some parts, maybe not as funny. Okay. Okay. And then Shin Godzilla, but Shin Godzilla was uh, not really that funny. To, so maybe maybe I was not expecting humor at all. All, all the bureaucracy stuff is funny in Shin Godzilla. It's, I would say it's more biting than f- like, like laugh out loud funny. Biting satire, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is, there's a difference, I think. Between what's something that is kind of purely funny and something that is funny in the sense that it is intentional in trying to make a joke versus something that is point out, pointing out something ridiculous in a person's or in an organization behavior that ends up being, you know, sort of a comedic, but not in the same sense as a, a, a joke funny. Yeah. And I think there's a subtle difference there that kind of makes made me why I, I enjoy Shin Godzilla so much. Okay, so that's the big disagreement. How are we going to have another one? I I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. But my number two is lesson lesson in murder, and we've already talked about that. So why don't you jump into number one, into what your number one was? So uh, this one took me completely by surprise, and uh, it's another mainstream movie. It's called Offbeat Pops. Uh, have you seen it? No, I was not. I was not able to watch this one. But it, the 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 description looked interesting. I had it not been one of those request ones, I would have watched it. But I did not feel like sending the request one. I, I mean, you know, I, I'm gonna the, the, our audience might be confused as to what that is. But we had some screeners available, and some we had to request them. And this was one of the request ones, right? Yes, this is one of the requests that we had to go uh, to the yeah. shooters. And I was too lazy at the moment, but it looked interesting from the description and the images. Like this film, I don't think you would like this film. <laughs> um, essentially, it's a sort of a drama of a middle-aged man having to sort of 
face um, uh, a struggle uh, adapting to a new world. Uh, the middle-aged man uh, is Tsukasa Naruse. He's a detective, a veteran detective of 30 years, and um, he's on a case of uh, people essentially um, breaking into the homes of old folks and um, stealing their money. And um, uh, what happens is uh, the old folks start dying. And so he becomes very passionate about this case. He's also very old-fashioned, and he rubs up his colleagues the wrong way. And uh, he ends up getting demoted and sent to um, the police band. Like, when he he didn't know the police band existed, nobody knows. It's kind of like in the boonies. Uh, it's, uh, it's essentially exile from any real police work. So he's off the beat in that way. Uh, he's assigned uh, the role of drummer in the band, and he's also offbeat in that way. And he has to essentially learn how to harmonize with the people around him. What he couldn't do uh, as a detective, and what he couldn't do, what he can't do as like a family man because he's divorced. He's got a bad relationship with his mother, who's got um, Alzheimer's, it seems, and with his daughter, uh, who he's never around for. And uh, through interacting with members of the band and seeing their sort of individual. Sh- struggles and how they integrate like their personal lives with their police work he becomes uh, a better person i don't think this is going to win um like people looking for uh like a serious crime movie around uh what it is is another sort of family friendly film um where you can really enjoy a great cast of characters led by Hiroshi Abe, uh, and includes like, uh, Kyohiko Shibukawa as like a drummer, uh, who's in like the police, uh, motor division, who's got a, a, like a punk background. And it's a really surprising film, uh, from Eiji Uchida, who's a director who's like from the indie world, um, who's done stuff like Grateful Dead, No Life Love, and Love and Other Cults. This is very mainstream, big budget movie making, and it was, uh, satisfying. Yeah, I mean, it sounds interesting, and the description sounded interesting. I, I mean, I mean, still time, so I still might get to watch it. But I didn't have, I didn't have time uh, or a chance to watch it. But you know, before we are recording this, yeah, I think like uh, I might blow my credibility as a hybrid film critic. Not that I ever had much credibility. <laughs> uh, but well, yeah, I, I mean, that's no, that there's that's nothing. I mean, there's 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 everybody has, Everybody has blind spot, but I don't think this is what's the case. Everybody has, you know, things that appeal to them personally. There are films that don't necessarily do anything groundbreaking. They are not necessarily original. They might not be a word worth it, but they do something very well that can appeal to a person. Yeah, and this is a, a well-made film that can appeal to a wide audience. And I think, uh, like, visually it's really engaging, and it does all the setups and uh, callbacks uh, really well. And uh, the evolution of um, the main character, Naruse, is satisfying to watch. And there's some great moments of like music, uh, musical performances where it looks like the cast are putting their role into playing their instruments. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to give it a shot if, uh, if, I, if I can find the time to. <laughs> okay, and then uh, the next episode will be a massive disagreement. <laughs> Jason, how could you want that? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if it is, it will just be a mansion. I don't think we'll linger on it that that much but we'll see okay okay so my number one was the taiwanese film life for sale okay it is an a a thriller a sort of a neo-noir type of thriller maybe slight comedic elements to it but very minor about an insurance sales who has decided to end his life but 
no matter how many times he tries, he can't seem to succeed. There's always something that gets in the way of his attempted attempts at suicide. Um, however, after getting his by complete accident, getting after getting his hands on a copy of Yukio Mishima's A Life for Sale, uh, he decides to follow the example in the book and put his life and tr- attempt to sell his life to the highest bidder, hoping that whatever he does will end up in ending his life. However, this has the opposite effect of leading him to an increasingly strange and bizarre series of events, uh, some, some, such as troubles with the police, uh, getting involved in gang rivalries, uh, getting involved with a sociopathic ex-baseball star turned criminal, and even a mysterious organization that is conducting medical experiments. I hope, I don't know if this is a spoiler, it might be, this technically qualifies as a superhero film, but the superhero aspect of it almost doesn't enter into play. And it's could, I mean, the, the actual, I, I didn't mention the medical experiments part, and that's, that's kind of revealed relatively early in the film, so I don't think this is much of a spoiler. Uh, but it does, it, it, there is like a superhero element to that, but it's so, so minor. It is important to the story, but it is minor in terms of uh, this being qualified as a superhero genre. I don't know that it would, uh, but it, it was such a, such an, a revelation as a film. It was such an interesting uh, experience. I, I said that I could, I could struggle for days picking numbers two to five, but halfway through this film, I knew that it was number one for me. Uh, that is, I, I enjoyed so much. It was, again, for one thing, it was a very interesting depiction of his depression because he was clearly depressed. And it was more of a, not the COVID type of depression or any other type of depression. It was more of the sort of existential struggle type of depression. He could not sort of understand what his, why his life or if his life uh, mattered. And that was really the the kind of uh, depression that he was suffering from. And in terms of the, the visual aesthetic, it was had very beautiful cinematography, very, very stylish. And it was sort of a mixture of uh, old boy and um, uh, fight club in terms of sort of like this gritty neo-noir uh, uh, cinematography that the film, and it was very beautiful to look at uh, for the most part. There's, there's, it's a, uh, it's a crime thriller and so there's a lot of fight there's a lot of involvement with the the with gangsters the acting is absolutely fantastic uh and i think i don't know if that i recognize any of the actors but the one main actor actress who's also a romantic interest of this uh of this guy Joanne Sang she kind of looked familiar although i i don't know that i've heard her necessarily i mean i'm not i don't follow taiwanese cinema that closely uh but she did look familiar i think she might be a famous like TV actors in in Taiwan or something like that. Yeah, I don't recognize any of the names. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I mean, it it is great, and it's the, sort of the the plot is loosely inspired by the novel, which is also referenced the film Life for Sale by Yukio Mishima, which I have not read, but from the description, looks like it's a very bizarre, uh, bizarre novel. And the film ended with the hint that this may sort of continue. Then that's the superhero sort of aspect that that I mentioned. Where it ended, that there might be a a a sort of a continuation to the story. The I have to say, like similar to the boys, the ending was not. It was maybe a little bit too fast paced, a little bit too hurried up, but it still I think worked ultimately. And sort of like the the first two thirds of the film is so satisfying, so well done that I I think you can forgive easily forgive the ending for being. Maybe not 100% there. Based on your description, I wish I had watched it 
uh, before recording this episode, so I'll definitely watch it uh, sometime in the coming days. Yeah, it's it's very good and it's very fun. Also, it's a very fun film. It's action packed. It's uh, there's the the mystery element to it. There's a bit of non-linear and sort of a non-linear. Well, I don't know that I would call it non-linear. There are flashbacks. I think that's really uh, going on. And there's it's violent, but it's not extremely graphic or as graphic as I suppose it could have been. It's not as graphic as some of the scenes in uh, Lesson Lesson of Mur- Wait, what was it? Lessons in Murder? Yeah. Because that one I was really graphic at some points, but no, I mean this is pretty, uh, pretty, pretty interesting, and there's some interesting symbolism uh, in the film, some interesting visual imagery in the in the film as well. Yeah, I don't know if it was inspired by anything or if it's original. There's like maybe a manga. I don't see anything in the description. I mean, there's very little online about this film, as there is very little, at least in English, for a lot of these Taiwanese films. Mm. Yeah, but uh, but I don't know. I'm not aware that there was sort of the introduction had some like comic book references there was a uh there are some cartoons sort of like animated sequences kind of thrown in the middle of the film mm. um and there's there's a lot of humor in it in in the film as well okay it is fun i recommend it i recommend it. and i i i'm fairly certain like this sound looks like the kind of film that would get a, an international uh, release in in some form or other. So I, if you, uh, I would also recommend the listeners if they have the chance to watch it because I think it's very fun. It's not just I think a great film, but it's also a very very fun film. And it's in as much as it qualifies for the super, superhero genre, which I think it does. It is a very unique and a very very good take on it, and it's unlike a lot of what is superhero stuff that is, of course, has saturated TV and. And film uh, in the last decade or so. Okay, you did it here first. Uh, let's hope it gets wider release. Okay, all right. So I think that was uh, our top five. So why don't you give a, a quick like rundown of the titles of your top five, and then I'll also give mine after that. So we have like a summary. Okay, so my top five are Lesson in Murder, and that was followed by Broken Commandments, and then came Ribbon. And then Shin Ultraman, and last but not least, Offbeat Cops. And yeah, and for my more Mama Boy, dealing with Dad, perhaps Love, Lesson in Murder, and Life for Sale. Uh, and again, that does not so just speaking for myself. That does not mean that they were the five best films. It was just again how lists are. A lot of factors go into it, and had I made the list a different day in a different mood, it probably would have looked different. Yeah, like, uh, I was swayed by spectacle and just, like, all-around feel-good storytelling. So you sold out, basically, what you're saying. Essentially, I, I'm <laughs> done with depressing dramas. And <laughs> I see. And trying to read too much into the text. I just want something easy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay, well, I mean, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, these are the films that if I saw them in a, if I had, like, five tickets then um i would be quite happy to see them in the cinema yeah i can move yeah i don't, I don't know i mean y- your approach was perhaps a little bit more narrow than mine because you focused on the japanese films for me it was i i because <laughs> from the description i mean the whoever wrote the summaries did a good job because it was it made it hard for me to pick because you know of course i knew that i had a limited amount of time and i knew i was not going to be able to watch all, not even most of the films, not even yeah. half, in fact. So I had to pick, so it was very hard for me to kind of 
like way the description of the film. Maybe the particular sometimes I was in the mood for a comedy or a feel good, and I did that kind of. I look for that. Uh, it was hard, but uh, but so I, I was ultimately happy with the uh, so not only the my top five, but overall with the selection of the films that I ended up watching. Uh, I'm going to start writing some reviews for some of them. Obviously, I don't think I'll have time for to write a lot of reviews, but I'm going to try to get a few out for for our uh, the website that we write on V Cinema. Uh, however, as as we mentioned at the beginning, it, we probably should go over our, uh, over some of our honorable mentions. So in addition to your top five, Jason, what were some other films that you felt were pretty impressive, but maybe not quite top five worthy? So uh, due to rules, uh, having covered this already, um, we didn't talk about Angry Sun, but I felt like this was the best Japanese film at New York Asian Film Festival. And if you want to hear more about our thoughts on Angry Sun, go back to the Osaka Asian Film Festival podcast. Absolutely. In terms of the other films, I, I managed to watch nearly all of the Japanese films. I didn't have access to two of the shorts. I watched Oxhead Village by Takashi Shimizu. And, um, like, if you're expecting, uh, his, like, as a filmmaker, he's moved on from the days of Juon, which, like, episodic horror movies, um, like, very scary. He's now making much more accessible <laughs> horror movies with comedy in them. And, um, Oxhead Village is the third in the trilogy of, um, uh, village stories, essentially mixing uh, curses, folk horror, and urban legends and fan footage. Yeah, I, I, I must confess, I intentionally avoided any, uh, any horror films. I don't, I don't think any of the films that I watch would qualify as horror. And if I saw horror in the descriptions, I tend to avoid it. Partly, I mean, I, I, I made no secret of my uh, prejudice towards horror uh, that that I have. But I also, I was never while watching. Uh, I was never in the mood for it. Like, I if if I was ever if I ever found myself in the mood, I would have probably bitten the bullet and watched one or two horrors. But I just never found myself in the mood for for that 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 genre. Yeah, I uh, in terms of Oxhead Village, I had low expectations because I'd watched Heron Village back in um, 2020 and uh, or 2019. I just wasn't that impressed with it. I felt like uh, it wasn't scary. It had terrible CG, and the story was convoluted. Uh, like told in non chronological order, uh, uh, well, flashback sequences, and it just wasn't convincing as a horror movie. And I think, like, as a horror movie director, he's kind of lightened up. Um, I didn't find it scary. Um, I'm definitely going to write about it though, because there's very interesting aspects about it. its backgrounds, uh, particularly like the filming location, Tsukino Mineral Spring Hall, which is like a real, like, haunted location in the world. Um, and also, like, he goes to Toyama Prefecture and sees a mirror, uh, mirage that happens in Toyama Bay. And I think he, uh, more or less integrates these things, um, well into the story. Um, but overall, like, if you're looking for a scary horror movie, uh, Boxhead Village is a bit. Uh, another, uh, Japanese horror I watched is Grown Ups by Takuya Kato. Um, and this is like, this is, uh, a non-linear story where you've got, like, scenes of a relationship. Uh, at the start and at the end, uh, uh, cut between those scenes. So you've got happy scenes and sad scenes as you see, like, this relationship between two university students in both when the, uh, woman finds out that she's pregnant. And, um, it's kind of like an ironic title because these two characters who are, like, eager to grow up or on the cusp of growing up 
find themselves acting like a ch- in a childish and irresponsible manner. And um, it's got a very convincing and um, scary depiction of like emotional abuse from uh, the main male actor. It's just like, uh, and this is um, done in lots of long takes as well. So it's very acting. Yeah. So one, a couple of, so I, I did watch the film. I, it, but there, there were parts of it that I enjoyed. I felt, it was one of the few instances of a Japanese romantic movie that doesn't infantilize the romance. I think a lot of them, especially the romantic comedies, tend to sort of uh, tend to be very unrealistic, at least for my taste. This didn't do it, but it's still, I couldn't help but feel a certain immaturity from the part of the filmmakers or the writers of the film that just kind of didn't quite uh, feel satisfying for me in terms of how the relationship was depicted and so the the things that would often lead to conflict between uh between the ac- the characters and you could say that that was the characters being immature but i i feel like there's a fine line between the character uh, a competent depiction of immature characters and an incompetent depiction of immature characters and i feel like this was somewhere in between that line that it didn't quite work for me sometimes it did some some scenes it did sometimes it didn't uh, as for the non-linear version, I also feel like they could have done a better job. It was very, uh, maybe this was intentional, but it didn't work for me. It was it was sometimes hard to tell what was when, it, what what was happening at what point in their relationship. It feel like they could have maybe delineated that a little bit more explicitly. I don't, I'm not sure. There are subtle, there are subtle, there are subtle changes in the aspect ratio. That's right. I might have missed that. I might have. I don't think I caught. I, I was. I don't think I I noticed that. I'm not sure I did. If I did, I'd forgotten about it. I think it's one of those things that uh, you have to watch it again. But like I yeah, I think there's a a lack of depth to the characters, and it's kind of like um, middle class concerns because like the main female character, even though she's in a pretty desperate situation, she comes from comes she comes from a middle class background, and like she could get an abortion. But uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, uh, like. Well, she did get an. She does get an abortion, right? Uh, no, at the end it's left open. Wait, I thought she does. She says at some point, doesn't she say, "I got an abortion for you"? Or is she lying in that scene? I'm pretty sure there is a line where she there's, says, "says him." There's another. There's there's the first girlfriend of the male character who's like, "Why did I get oh, this abortion?" Oh, okay. From yeah, I'm. I definitely. The film confused me. I definitely did not get this film. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I want to watch the second time, but perhaps you're right in the sense that you, it's a, a second watch is is a must, is a necessary one because I, I mean, I'm pretty sure I saw her drinking, so I thought that's why I also assumed uh, maybe maybe there were two girls that looked the same or looked similar that I'm confusing them. I don't know. Uh, this was one of the first movies that I watched, so maybe I'm. It's been a while. Yeah, it's uh, like this is why it didn't hit my top five because I like. I think it's kind of like you, um, perhaps like if it was on a streaming service, you would be able to go back and watch it again. But uh, I don't think there's like too too much depth to it to demand going to cinema. And uh, Intimate Stranger by Mayu Nakamura, um, which is a very interesting film in the sense that um, one of the reasons she made it was that she wanted to have a um, female character in her 40s who's allowed to be sensual. And she gets Asuka Kurosawa, who's fantastic in A Snake, 
in June, uh, Shinya Tsukamoto film, uh, to portray this woman who's constantly sort of looking for her son. And, um, she gets into this relationship with a guy who's trying to scam her, but then it's turns into like a psychological film about who's, like, who's the predator in these situations. You realize that, um, neither of their stories really adds up. And, uh, this, uh, the film rests on a fantastic performance by Asuka Kurosawa. I'm not sure if you watched this one. I did watch it. This this was one of my honorable mentions. And in a different day, this could have been in my top five. Uh, and I, I don't really have that many negatives to say. I just, you know, the I think the psychology, the psychological thriller aspects of the film were fantastic. I think the twist and uh, in the end, I, I think I saw it coming. And perhaps I don't. I don't think they did a good job in not telegraphing it quite enough. I think they did perhaps telegraphed a little bit too obvious. But again, it's not. It's not the kind of thing that would ruin the movie for me at all. It was, if I'm forced to to say something negative about it. But otherwise, I thought it was a pretty good. Nothing outstanding, of course, but a very well done thriller and a fantastic performance, as you say. Okay. I did. So this was. I think. This was not. This is not about COVID, but this is takes place right in the middle of COVID, right? That, that I mean, the the film is very aware of COVID because all the characters wearing masks all the time. Yeah, and um, one of the scams is uh, I've got COVID. Um, yeah, I need money. So there you go. That's another example because COVID is kind of central, not not a hundred percent central, but it is sort of important to the story. Yeah, uh, two films. Uh, how many more in the festival? Yeah, sure. Okay, I mean it's not all everything, but it's something. Um, uh, yeah. So that no, it was it was it was great. I think the uh, her yeah, like I said, the twist was interesting, but perhaps they could have done a better job at the foreshadowing or or reduced. I don't know, approach it differently. But otherwise, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, agreed. And so the, uh, those are my honorable honorable mentions. Um, Girl on the Builders as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, Angry Son and Girl and Bulldozer, though those go without saying because those were in our, they were in my top five, and I think they were also in your top five. Yeah, and the Osaka. The Osaka, yeah. yeah. So those go without saying. Um, uh, Intimate Stranger was also mine, as you mentioned. Another one was the South Korean film Confession, and I found this out. I don't know if this would have made it in my top five in uh, easily. But he was, I think, good enough to be an honorable mention. It is about a lawyer who is actually played by the the woman that was also in Lost in the TV show Lost, the okay. Korean woman. Um, I don't know if you've seen that show. Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, okay. But you know that there's a Korean couple that are that star in that show. Well, not yeah, star, I... but they're part part of the main cast. My mother watched it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she. Uh, Daniel Day Kim is he? The he is male? the male, and the female yeah. I forget what her name is, but she's uh, she's actually Korean. Daniel Day Kim is American, whereas she's Korean, so she's been. I think she was in Siri. Oh, um, nineteen ninety nine. Um, yeah, 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 the, yeah. Uh, North Korean um, secret agents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, and so this is about you know uh, an accidental murder of a, of a young man from an, a powerful executive and his girlfriend who, or his mistress. And in order, the, the premise of the film is that in order not to, uh, to cause scandal, uh, rather than sort of like reveal that it was a, a traffic accident, they actually decide to hide the car of the, 
of the young man and sort of like that comes when the mistress dies unexpectedly the the this executive is accused of of uh, of her murder and this also other story also comes out so there's there essentially the film is how do they damage control this and there's a, most of it most of it takes place in uh, uh in a in in a room with a lawyer and flashbacks as they're telling the story and it is one sort of common one central theme is the unreliable narration because he tells the story obviously he's an he has his own personal interest in telling the story, and then the lawyer is also telling him what she really thinks happened. So there's two conflicting, uh, conflicting uh, narratives that kind of that you kind of get flash back and forth between what may have happened, what could have happened, and I think in the end, uh, one thing that I didn't like is that instead of leaving it ambiguous in the end, I'm pretty sure we find exactly what happened, and mm. uh, the bad people get their comeuppance, and it ends up in a very kind of I think stereotypical manner i think one thing that i discovered after watching the movie that this is a remake of a spanish film called the uninvited guest or something like that like that and i haven't seen the spanish film it was relatively popular in 2017 from what i found out and watching the trailer even sort of like the visual aesthetics seem very very similar so i think this might be a shot for shot remake or at least close to that and for some reason that makes it a little less impressive for me Okay. Uh, and then the other honorable mention was the sales girl, which I believe you saw at the Osaka Film Asian Asian Film Festival, but I didn't. Yeah, um, and this the Mongolian film. Yeah, um, so we're not on the Mongolian steps; we're in the capital city, and um, I saw Irving cast the characters. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it was—I mean, it was—it was a very enjoyable. But this could have easily been, in my in fact, I—I I, I struggled to include this in my top five, and I, I don't know. The only reason it didn't make it is because it just I had to make a split like a decision quickly before the we started recording about what to include. But this was a I enjoyed this film a lot. Uh, I have I don't think I've ever seen a Mongolian film before. This might be the first one I've seen the the Genghis Khan movie from two thousand seven, which is not really a Mongolian film, but one of the films one of the countries that sponsored it that. Public, that um, produced it was Mongolia, among a lot of others. So I think that was a, a Russian, Kazakhstan, even Japanese, even Japan had like a, a role in producing it. And Mongolia also had a role in producing that film. But I think other than that, this, this one might be the only Mongolian film. And I was, I thought it was pretty good. Um, uh, it was, you know, I was a bit, maybe perhaps this reflects my ignorance, but I was a bit surprised at how you know developed and industrialized the city the mongolian city was mm. i don't know why i expected it to be maybe a little bit more rural yeah. like i've seen a film from bhutan and even the city in bhutan didn't seem as for example like a nothing like a japanese city for instance or yeah. a chinese city but mongolia this main mongolian city seemed pretty uh you know modern and industrialized which i was surprised yeah i've i've seen a few mongolian films um and uh yeah they're mostly set on the uh, steps and like uh horse riders and so forth and um nomads so this is a nice change of pace yeah but are they historical or set in current in oh, contemporary uh, contemporary times yeah interesting interesting yeah so this was definitely an urban uh, uh had an urban setting and that was and i mean that's only a minor point i mean i think the story was incredible the visual style was incredible i think they overdid it a little bit with the diegetic music with the 
cutaways to like the band. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's real. I, I guess they had a, uh, maybe he's a famous Mongolian singer or something that they had a contract with. Yeah. And they had to include with the uh, thing. But otherwise I thought the story uh, to be wonderful. I thought sort of like the, the, the evol- evolution of the character from the beginning to end, I thought it was very well done. The acting was great. I, I, I there was a few parts of it that's kind of, I mean, the film had like this sort of abstract theme, this sort of like like relatively sur- almost half surrealist story to it about those sort of like this girl working in a sex shop, and there was like a small moment where she kind of moralizes, has this like monologue about middle class or low class morals, about how how real happiness is and what that, and I felt that was a bit out of step with the rest of the film. Hmm. But otherwise, I don't know. I thought it was. Very, very good. Considering its subject matter, it could have gone wrong, but it actually worked out pretty no, well. No, yeah, it, it worked out great. And it was, yeah. like I said, this could have easily been in my top five. Yeah. But yeah, but I think that that's it. Uh, there's, uh, I, I think we've talked most, one way or another, we've mentioned most films that I watched. One film that I watched, but didn't make that much of an impression of him, was a Hong Kong film, Legendary in Action. Okay. And it's about a an independent Hong Kong director who wants to make a Husha film mm. and sort of hires an old, retired, and slightly senile old Husha actor to be in it. And I don't know, it felt like too caricature-ish. I, I didn't buy the... I mean, it was enjoyable. I, I, I had fun watching the film, but I don't know that it was a necessarily a necessarily good depiction of sort of Hong Kong cinema. It seemed to be an attempt at being a love letter to Hong Kong cinema. In fact, there's even like a final monologue towards the end of the film where he kind of speaks on the state of Hong Kong cinema and how it's not what it used to be and, you know, all that. So it seems to that was the attempt. I'm not sure the execution worked as well as they intended it to. Yeah. Okay, and that's it. I think that's it. That's I think I watched 12 films all in all for this, and I think those were... The top five, my honorable mentions, and some less than honorable mentions, but still, I think uh, I'm happy I watched them. Any closing statements about the festival? Any overall uh, impressions or closing uh, thoughts about it? Uh, yeah, like I focused on the Japanese films. Um, uh, from your descriptions of some of the films you, are, uh, you uh, talked about in your top five, um, and your honorable mentions, I uh, definitely need to branch out and uh, look at films from other regions. There's and, time. Yeah, there's still time. So um, what I'm going to do is try and write reviews of as many as possible. All right. All right. So this uh, we, took a, we took a break from our season coverage to, to do a special on the New York Asian Film Festival. And after that, we'll resume our coverage of Asian award winners with the Hong Kong film The Mission, uh, directed by uh, Joni To. So as always, if you have any comments, suggestions, thoughts, let us know at heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or you can reach us on Twitter uh, at heroicpurgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.